This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. We also have the support of lynda.com, who with over 2,000 high-quality and engaging videos, provides a wide breadth of courses from beginner to advanced. lynda.com is there to help you to learn creative, software, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. To take advantage of their 7-day free trial, visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame. That's L-Y-N-D-A forward slash the candid frame. You can now download the latest episode of the candid frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the candid frame app available for Apple iOS, Android, and windows eight. You can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. To make a life as a photographer requires a certain level of commitment. It's not just about trying to make a living as a photographer, though of course that's that's a big part of it. It can also be about a commitment to your own personal passions, the subject matter that moves your heart and your soul. And that can be a really difficult thing to do over the span of years. But today's guest, Marissa Roth, is a photographer who exemplifies this idea. She is not just satisfied to make pleasing photographs or win an award. She wants her images to impress on the viewer the beauty and the fragility of the people and the world we live in. Whether it's with her long-term project on One Person Crying Women in War or her latest book, Infinite Light, a photographic meditation on Tibet, you will discover a photographer who puts her soul, love, and life into her work. So enjoy our conversation with Marissa Roth. Well, Marissa, thank you for welcoming me to your to your home and 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 sitting down to talk with me. I've been really looking forward to having the chance to chat. So, thank you, Ibario X. I appreciate it, and uh, it's delightful. It's a delight to have you here. Yeah. When I was looking at your your your, your work and, and reading about your story, man, you have been all over the place. I've and been around, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was amazing to see the diversity of work that you've created over the years. It's it's really fascinating. My first question to you is, do you see yourself primarily as a photographer or a storyteller? Or do you sort of, or do you even differentiate between the two? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, Nobody's ever asked me that question before. I suppose at heart, I'm a, I'm a storyteller, but I am a photographer. I'm both. But I, I, because I worked as a photojournalist for, you know, 25 years, that was all about the story. And and when I worked, I had to also illustrate reporters' stories. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm a visual storyteller, absolutely. 
So I don't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make a distinction. It's always fascinated me about the challenge of not only making an aesthetically pleasing image, but being able to make that singular image that tells or conveys a story. Right. That, you know, most people fixate about making a, a very pleasing photograph to look at, but as a photojournalist or even as a documentary photographer, you're looking for that that photograph to convey something of a of a narrative. Did that really did that skill come to you as a result of the work that you did as a as a photojournalist or do you find that there were some other things that helped influence that way of thinking and seeing? You know, it wasn't that conscious actually to I guess to tell myself, okay, tell a story with multiple sort of layers within an image. I think it's how I see and how I think. But yes, I think certainly working as a photojournalist, um, it wasn't just the straight sort of image that I always felt that I had to tell more with a picture. But I think it was also how I interpreted things, um, which I think is a combination of intellect, um, interest, um, sort of a visual response Um, and then a lot of times with quite a bit of my work not necessarily my work on assignment but my personal work I think there's a large degree of emotion in the work and so I say you know photographers are the conduit I mean the camera is just a tool so whatever we're feeling and interpreting and ingesting and digesting and then outputting it's we're it's coming through us so whatever we're feeling or thinking and seeing quickly is hopefully what comes out on you know on the image it's interesting that you're using the word feeling because when most people think about photojournalism they're thinking about detachment about being objective and that feelings don't seem to be part and parcel of that way of thinking about making a photograph can you can you explore that a little more with us? Well, I'm not sure there's such a thing as an objective image. Um, I think it's all subjective. Um, I think as journalists, we try to tell a story, but I think every photojournalist probably has a very deep point of view, although we try to tell balanced stories. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're still leaving images out, leaving information out of an image. How, what are we? What are we choosing to put within the frame? What are we cropping out? Mm-hmm. So that's choice. Those are choices um, that the photographer makes. So, but no, I think most photojournalists try to tell whatever the story is, but it's it's a story within a much bigger story. Yeah, I mean that that point about the, the myth of objectivity is something that I've always been agreed mm. agreed with because they, everyone comes to the table with different history, with you know different life experiences that almost inevitably shape how you see and how you figure things, figure things out. So, can you give me an example about a, a time where you had to sort of get comfortable with your own way of seeing and thinking about things to be able to still create a story, but to create a story where you felt like you were really being not only honest to the people who were viewing the images, but to yourself. Because sometimes, you, uh, to my thinking, you could, because you're working for a newspaper, mm-hmm. and they have certain expectations of what the images you know, should be, but yet you're trying to express something that is really honest as far as your perspective, mm-hmm. but also achieves what they desire from, 
from the story. Does that make that make sense? Yeah, I, I'll try to answer that. I mean, I think when I first started shooting for the LA Times, I started working for them when I was 27, so I was still young and, I guess, forming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I... I kind of I didn't subjugate my my own sort of personal vision per se or creativity but I definitely tried to shoot in a much more traditional photojournalistic manner and then to the point where sometimes I would talk myself out of taking a picture even though I was seeing it hmm. because I said oh no the paper will never run this it's not a straight picture so I had those kind of tug of wars with myself and then I'd sort of kick myself because I could see the picture but I didn't take it. And I think as I was sort of maturing I sort of just decided well to just take the picture and then but when I started shooting um more and more and getting more confident I think just by virtue of how I see the pictures were well received and so I realized oh I can actually impart more of my creativity you know I like to incorporate a lot of I guess metaphor or subtlety in pictures that have sort of but that that also have a punch to it and actually the picture that was part of the LA Times sort of group of images from the riots the picture that was part of the group that won the Pulitzer was it was more of one of those metaphorical images it was a it was a picture um it was the day after the riot started and somebody had put a a a, a sort of a photograph in a frame of martin luther king on a burned out building and that was the picture that i took and then that was the the front page picture of this five-part special that the la times did that we won for so again it was a it was a it was a metaphorical image, although it was a straight image, but that's how I was interpreting sort of the events that were were going down at that time. Yeah, well, take us back to that event, because I, I, that, was, that was something I really wanted to talk to you, because I'm really not talked to anyone who was actively shooting right. uh, for a paper during that, during that time. Yeah. Um, tell me about those initial moments when you found out what was happening and what was, you know... What, what, was, what were the next things that happened for you? Um, well, I was actually at home when the verdict came down. And uh, my then almost husband, fiancé, who also worked at the LA Times, called me and he said, you're not leaving the house. <laughs> he said, just please stay put. So I wasn't actually working that day. I was off that day. Um, and so, you know, he came home and we were watching everything going down. And then, of course, the crack of dawn, we were back at the paper and he made me promise I wouldn't go out. And then, of course, you know, <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> anyway, it was a broken promise. But um, anyway, so the editor, you know, called back into the photo department and said, who's there? And then he started dispatching everybody. And um, I, it was, it's like, so, it's, life is so bizarre. So I think there was an Oregon-UCLA basketball game. And it was like a championship or something. And there were these two photographers with two Oregon newspapers, you know, these really nice guys. And so I guess they were pretty excited that it was a pretty big news story. Mm. So my editor said, go out with these guys. So here I am, you know, and um, going out, I went to third in Vermont, and there was a fire and 
there were all these cops, and here are these two other photographers who I felt responsible for, but, you know, they had no idea what to do. Not that I had any idea what to do, but it was pretty wild. And so I was watching all these looters and trying to photograph them, and then the police were standing there just sort of in a row, you know, arms akimbo. And it was just somebody whistled, and and the mob sort of ran across 3rd Street. And I just, all I remember thinking was, and I'm shooting away, you know, like mothers with baby strollers looting, you know, Sony Walkmans or people, I mean, like looting paper towels. And all I could think about was, oh, my God, the line between civilization and anarchy is really, really thin. Mm-hmm. And that was like my my moment. And I thought, wow, it was pretty wild. So um, it was a pretty hectic, intense few days. So that was Thursday, Friday. I think the National Guard came down that day, and then Friday was pretty intense. And I remember we came home after they imposed a curfew. And so we had to take sort of the long way back, come further west, and then go back, sort of make a loop back to mid-Wilshire where we were living. Yeah, and I mean, we were seeing all these fires burning in the hills, and there'd been a a report on the on the police radio at the paper that there were some snipers on the on the one ten freeway, the Harbor Freeway south of downtown. So it was a pretty charged few days, and then Saturday, everything was calm, and that people were starting to get out and paint over, you know, like burned out buildings and people were really helping each other. It was quite astonishing how fast kind of the flip went. Um, And then Sunday I had to cover, there was like a, 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 I wouldn't say it was a peace demonstration, but there was like a a sort of a a peace rally in Koreatown. Um, So I covered that. And then I did a lot of sort of aftermath stuff. Um, there were a lot of follow-up stories, and you know, mainly in South Central. But it was, it was quite a shattering event, I think, for a lot of people in Los Angeles. And I felt actually fortunate to be a journalist because I felt like I could be active. I wasn't passive in this experience. And somehow being active took away some of the fear I mean I I was I you know friends afterward you could just the fear was like palpable I mean there was like a joke nobody would come to dinner if it was east of San Vicente (laughs) I mean but it was actually really true you know like some west side people just wouldn't come east of La Brea I mean it was just so it was quite a um I don't know LA in those days it was We had sort of this, you know, double whammy. Uh, Well, I was sort of a triple whammy almost. We had the riots in 92, and then we had the O.J. Simpson, sort of that kind of, I don't know, that was so strange for the city. And then we had that big Northridge earthquake. I mean, it just seemed like it was just this time of these sort of heightened dramas um, that really... I don't know. I felt like, in a way, it was it was LA's coming of age time. Yeah. And those are those are really unusual moments in the day to day of a of a journalist. Is not as dramatic or theatric or whatever right. word, <laughs> word you want to use. But, right. But how did covering those events end up coloring your portrayal of the city subsequently? And then the, the weirdness is on the complete flip side of that. You know, since Hollywood is you know the heartbeat of LA and the company town. So as a journalist here, as a photojournalist, I was always covering Hollywood stuff. So, you know, here I would be in South Central, you know, photographing a dead 
gang member, you know, under a white sheet and then run back to the paper, put on, you know, black tie clothes and run to the Beverly Hills Hotel to photograph some, you know, event. I mean, it was very, it was very surreal because it was all so close, you know, it was 10 miles away or 15 miles away. So that juxtaposition was kind of, I always found it quite bizarre. And actually, I'm thinking if I eventually do a big L.A. book, um, rather than do sort of a Hollywood book or an L.A. book, I think I'm just going to mix up all the pictures together because they're all in black and white and shot with the same film and same cameras and just kind of keep that edginess and sort of that weirdness. I mean, it's kind of a bizarre rabbit hole here. It's a very schizophrenic city. It's a very schizophrenic city. Yeah, yeah, because like you said, within, you know, within 30 minutes, you're in a completely different world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's, for me, that's always been sort of the fascination of the city. You know, people, people think about the West Side, they think about Hollywood, about Los Angeles, but it's like, it's like a small percentage of what this entire city is sort of made up from. And in your role as a journalist, you had, you know, access to, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah, especially the people and the stories that were that were told there. Did you find that, um, other than the events that we we talked to, that there was one story that really allowed you to sort of think of the city in a, in 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 a different way? L.A. is complicated for me though, because that's uh, I don't like L.A. Actually, I never really liked it. I, I used to loathe it. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I didn't choose to live here. Um, I happened to be born here, but it's not my heart home. It's never been. I can't explain it. Even as a kid, I didn't like it. I think I've made peace with it. So L.A. for me, yeah, I always felt even psychologically like I always had one foot in, one foot out. And I think it's because my parents were were from Eastern Europe, and they were really old Europe. They were very cultured and, you know, sort of European. And so they came to this young city, um, as opposed to settling in New York when they came to America. They came in 1938, 39, 38, 39. Somehow it just didn't coalesce, kind of the, the old world psyche with the sort of new world lightness here and and I it, I I just I think I'm I you know I think more like a New Yorker I act more like a European but then I am a California girl so I'm also a bit of a sort of schizophrenic sort of <laughs> two sides so I think you know LA yeah I don't know I don't, it's hard for me to say if I had there was one story I mean there were a lot of stories but I found I mean the Hollywood stuff was uh, I never wanted to become cynical. I mean, that would be too easy. The The challenge was to tell, for me, to tell the other side of Hollywood. So I would always try to tell more real stories or grittier stories about Hollywood, probably to counterbalance the, the facade of Hollywood. Yeah. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsors. Think about how many photographic websites you visit in the course of a week or a month. How long do you typically spend on those sites before you move on to something else? Now think about how quickly you might leave a website because it's too slow to load, or it looks like it was designed in the 90s. Lovers of photography are a savvy bunch, and they want a website and the photographs to be worthy of their attention and their time. 
And if you're a photographer, well, that begins with you. If you want a website that encourages viewers to linger and explore your work, there is no better place to start than with Squarespace. Find out for yourself by taking advantage of their 14-day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and just go for it and have some fun. When you decide to sign up for your Squarespace account, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. I think part of, for me, when I think about this city, it's, and I meet the people, it seems like so many of the people here are not about who they are, but who they're going to be. Well, I think it's, well, it's who they're going to be in their mind right. and who they want to be. But then the flip side of that is who they really are. And that's so complicated because I think a lot of people, you know, this is the city of opportunity. And I think that's what makes it great on some levels, but I think that's what also frustrates me. But I think, you know, L.A., people here, you know, they're, they're your best friend for five minutes at a dinner party if they think they can get something out of you. But if you really make it, you feel like you make a connection and you try to follow up with it, you know, there's nobody home. And it's, um, it's so it's kind of a weird place that way. Does it make it harder for you in terms of what you're trying to do with your camera in terms of telling a story, knowing that you have to sort of get past that idea in terms of the persona that these people want to put in front of you? I mean, to some extent, if you're doing a profile on someone in Hollywood, that's to be expected. But when you're doing, you know, stories in general, did you find that that was an issue or, or really it wasn't? Um, no, I mean, I think it was always the challenge for me when I was shooting a Hollywood person to try to get behind the surface that I challenged myself that way. And sometimes I would be really happy if I felt like, oh, I got a little bit of a, a real a real Mel Gibson or the real whoever, you know, or it was just an offbeat moment or something, not a choreographed moment. But no, I mean, for the most part, people here you know, there's a lot of regular people here. And I think, you know, my how people respond to me, I tend to be pretty open, open hearted, open emotion. And so I've discovered wherever I've been, if you come to a subject that way, they will eventually, maybe, hopefully, or not always, but respond in kind. You know, it's it's a human to human connection. I just happen to have a camera. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's been wonderful stories here. There's been tough ones. Um, well, you've been working as a freelancer, and you are working on your own personal projects, your documentary projects. So yeah. tell us a, a, a bit about one of your most recent projects and how, you know, the skill set <laughs> and experience that you, you know, that you learned and gained as a result of working on the paper for so many years has kind of helped you in terms of the work that you are basically self-assigning to yourself. Yeah, I think my most recent project is my upcoming book on Tibet. I chose to photograph with film. I actually chose to photograph with the last of the Kodachrome film. Mm. I knew that I didn't want to shoot digital and that I didn't want to shoot black and white. And so I tracked down a, you know, a bunch of Kodachrome 
And I, um, when I went to Tibet, I didn't want to look like a professional photographer. I just wanted to look like your garden variety tourist. And so I just took one of my old Nikons and then I bought an autofocus little beautiful Leica film camera. And that's all I used. And for some reason, um, I mean, my old Nikons are like old friends. I don't even think about them. And so it was quite freeing just to have these two simple cameras I don't know, something happened to me in Tibet. Maybe it was the altitude, I don't know. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was loopier than usual. Um, but no, I, I, I went there with an idea to try to photograph the interface between the Han Chinese and Tibetan communities. And that held my interest for about one hour. And then I realized that I just had no interest in telling that story. Mm-hmm. So then I was just kind of reactive to my environment or when when I was in the monasteries and something just kind of happened to me. I don't know. It was like a freedom of spirit almost. And now looking at the work, I, I, I sequenced the images. I took, actually, I should backtrack a little bit and say, before I left on the first trip, I had almost like a vision where I could see the images in a single row wrapped around like a room or a gallery. I didn't know what the images were were going to be. I I wasn't going to pre-visualize them, but I knew I just wanted like a a sequence of images that unfolded in the the colors of the Tibetan prayer flags and almost like an art installation. And so when I was shooting there, I don't know, I was thinking almost like in, in a cinematic way, like just taking pictures of all sorts of things, although there's single images, which are very, very strong. All of them are single images. But I was definitely thinking of telling a story mm-hmm. or almost feeling like telling a story. I can't explain it. I, I mean, I think this project, it's, it's, like, it's like something from very deep inside my creative spirit came out with this. And I think... I don't think it's a coincidence that this has come out as I was finishing and finished my Women in War project. I think I had to get through something, get some, through something really big, which was the Women in War project. And I, I know now what that thing was. And what it was was sort of staring down my family's World War II history. My parents were Holocaust refugees. We lost a lot of family in the war. Uh, most sort of tragically, my paternal grandparents on my father's side were killed in a massacre along with my great-grandmother and great-uncle. And through my project, I I think I sort of found a certain peacefulness within myself. And so it freed me from this, I won't call it a burden because it just was something I needed to to work through. I needed to, it was a reckoning. It was almost like a family reckoning, but I, I think it, 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 something, I released something by working, finishing that project and working on it. And I think that the Tibet project is definitely the next, sort of chapter for me and it's because it's almost like an art piece but it's with straight photographs and so coming back to your question you know about the road of photography and all those years of being a photojournalist if it led to that and I would say yes I mean it's all it's an amalgamation of experience of sort of 
you know, thinking, feeling. But now it's just, I'm free. I mean, there was just kind of an amazing freedom of spirit in, in Tibet. I don't know. I, it's, I was almost just, I don't know. It was, it was, it was great. So. Yeah, because I was looking at the, the Woman in War series and, it, and, and thinking about the images that I saw of the Tibetan place and trying to sort of, sort of consolidate th- both of those visions right. in, into one. Because I looked at the woman in the war piece, and it was just, and I and immediately what came to mind is like, this must be emotionally exhausting, you know, to revisit this topic through the eyes of these people who've gone mm-hmm. through so much, right? Because uh, it's one thing just to make sort of a a couple of photographs for a photo story, and then you're off to another assignment. Right. But to make a commitment to really be as exhaustive as you can on this particular topic. And to hear the stories that you hear, and on top of that, trying to make a photograph that's not only good and tells the story, but it honors right. the people who are making your time, it's really demanding. So I can understand how you say that it was, in some ways, very cathartic to go to Tibet and make these images that were sort of you know, very different. From well, yes and no, because... If you, I mean, I, because I, I, I asked myself the question like, why Tibet? And then I realized, well, this is also a, a culture in diaspora. This was also a culture that's trying to be destroyed, and I suppose it's parallel to my heritage, you know, of the Jews of Eastern Europe. So you know, we, we you know, endured a, a huge genocide and. In dias- we were in diaspora now so it was kind of an interesting because I never thought about that at all mm-hmm. you know until I finished it and then I, somebody said why Tibet and then I really thought about it so um, so there's an interesting link there you know sort of very deep down but this is this is I don't know Tibet my Tibet pictures are it's I love Tibet you know I I it was it, I've never been more peaceful or happy in my entire life it's it's my happy place so when you looked at those pictures what surprised you about them I, I don't think I was surprised I I think you mean when I saw them afterwards? Yeah, when you saw them afterwards, because oh, you were shooting on film, so there's right. a disparity between when you actually make the pictures right. and you see them. So there's an, there's an opportunity there to, to have it like a disconnect from the photographs until right. you, get the, you, know, you get the contact sheets. Or but it was, slide, all, it was all just pure emotion and reaction when I was up there. Plus, I mean, it was all really about the light um, mm-hmm. in a funny way. Well, yes and no, but... Um, I think when I saw the film, you know, that it's like those two weeks when, and I shot, I shipped the film off to Dwayne's photo in Parsons, Kansas, because that was the only lab in the yeah. country that Kodak was supporting with the, with the Kodachrome um, processing. So those were, and I, I didn't send all the film in one FedEx, of course. So I, I split it into, I think, six shipments. So, that was like excruciating a week and a half. I mean, I thought I was going to, you know, like just tear my hair out. So, and then the film started coming back in batches of 12 rolls at a time. So my first reaction was probably just relief um, mm. that, that the film didn't get lost in FedEx and that it didn't, the x-ray didn't hurt it. And, and then I started looking at the pictures and then I started, you know, putting them together and sequencing them and 
But again, it was almost, that whole project was almost metaphysical. Certainly the sequencing of the images. I, I spent five months sequencing them and I would, um, would put this Tibetan meditation music and I would almost go into this like trance, pairing up images that I'd, I'd, I think I printed up 60 images to start with and then I started laying them on the floor in the color sequence and then when I ran out of room on the floor I had some cardboards built, uh, cut that I could put the pairs and then I put them up around my kitchen and then start walking around them just for a couple hours and then I repeated this over and over and over again and then I'd, if I saw a gap in the sequence I'd re-edit all you know, 150 rolls from both trips and... Um, and then after five months, it was there. So it was a very—I don't know. I it it. I mean, that's I, it's very hard to for me to articulate the creative process because it's almost like you're possessed by some some force. And I think what's nice coming back to I think one of your earlier questions is now I just surrender to that process. I don't fight it anymore. I don't have a, a list of the shoulds and shouldn'ts anymore. Yeah. I'm not trying to appease, uh, you know, a, a client or, you know, trying to fit into an expectation. Um, it's just I'm f- sort of free. Are you more difficult to satisfy than any client you've ever had? Yes, probably. I'm, I'm very, um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably been very s- sort of, scrupulous with myself and I'm a very tough editor sometimes I'm too spare early on I was much tougher on myself now I'm more oh that's cool <laughs> so yeah so I'm I'm loosened I've loosened the the you know and I think as I've taken pictures I took a workshop probably 20 years ago and I don't remember who said it but oh god I wish I could remember it was it might have been, I don't know, like even Ruth Bernhardt or somebody like that, but talking about looking at your work and that the work you're doing and then seeing a picture that's kind of different and that that image sometimes is a portent of things to come. Yeah. It's like the future you, but you don't recognize it because you're not quite in that space yet. Yeah, it, for me, it's, it's, I'm some, I sometimes surprise myself where I make a photograph, I'm not really thinking much about it. But then I look at it, and it's markedly different from the rest of them, but it ends up becoming a sort of a linchpin yeah. for everything else. Right. And it's, it's an unconscious thing, but it only reveals itself as a result of, of editing. Right. And I think it touches on the point that you made, that you really have to live with the photographs for a while. Yeah. And in order to sort of get a sense of how it works as, as a whole. That's why I'm kind of averse to seriously doing an edit on a computer screen. Yeah, I can't do it. I mean, it's it's. I find it challenging with students now. Um, you know, to just do the edit on the on the computer, although we don't have the luxury of you know printing out stuff. Um, but yeah, because I want to be able to sit and look at two or four images, you know, on, on, in paper, and maybe you know manually move them here, go left, go right, up, down. And, and just see how they feel together. I mean, again, for me, I, ha- I keep using the word feeling. It's not thinking, it's feeling. It's visually feeling. And I suppose after all these years of editing, um, I ha- I'm, I, I've sharpened my, my editing brain. But it's, at the end of the day, it's also how, how things feel next to each other. How do they relate to each other? Um, how do images relate to each other? 
not just on an intellectual level, but on a, an emotional level, because whatever you put next to it is going to have an interplay, just like, you know, when if you study color relationship, you know, if you put yellow, a yellow square next to a, a green square, it's going to look one way. But if you put a yellow square next to a, a purple square, it's going to look another way. So, you know, but you can't see, just see it, you have to see it. I, I don't know. And I, I, I still also, I think hands are still a very critical part of the creative process, and not just, you know, hitting keyboards and mouses, but you know, tangibly touching art, uh, you know, because the creative brain is also comes out of the hands. So, I've been using Lightroom since its first version, and it's my preferred software of choice for editing my images. And even though I've been using the software for years, there's always some new thing for me to learn and discover. In the past few weeks alone, I have found better ways to sharpen my images as well as use the radio filter tool as an alternative to a vignette slider. Though they may not be big features, they're enough to make a big difference in the look of my photographs. And I'm so grateful that lynda.com made it so much easier for me to discover that rather than going through 300 pages of a book. You can experience this for yourself and watch over 2,000 quality videos for free for a limited time. I've worked out a special deal with lynda.com to provide you with unlimited access to the entire library for free for seven days. Visit lynda.com forward slash the candid frame and use it for a week. That's lynda.com forward slash the candid frame to start your seven day free trial and help support the show. Well, you teach a class on documentary photography yeah. and editing and sequencing and a lot of the things that yeah. we're talking about. So you know, when you're teaching, what, what are some of the concepts you're trying to get across to people? Because on the show, I'm always ta- talking to people who work on personal projects. And I'm often you know, encouraging people who listen to the show that you really need to find, uh, find something that you sort of can sink your teeth in right. other than just the singular image. But you know, we only have a few minutes, but... Within those few minutes, are there any sort of ideas that you feel like it's really important to consider when you're when you're choosing a subject, and then when you start to photograph it? Yeah, I mean, I would think it can't just be intellectual. I mean, it has to be also you have to be able to be passionate about that subject because if you're going to commit your time and efforts and finances to a project. It has to be something that gives you a charge. Um, it's not just a concept thing. There's something, it has to go deeper than that. Um, so, you know, and also there's stories everywhere. It doesn't have to be the biggest story on the planet and change the world. You know, a small story can be just as potent as, as a big story. I think the hardest thing what I'm seeing now is a lot of people have a hard time just starting a project. There's kind of this fear to start. And I don't know if that's, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, you know, but I don't, won't even go there. But it, I don't know if it's because they're afraid of failing or I don't know what it is. Where's the impediment? But it's, I think for everybody, it's hard to start. But, you know, I would just say start by one picture at a time, you know, and just and see where it takes you. But I think it's also we're, we're kind of in a left brain world at the moment with all of our technology. 
And I think the right brain actually is is a pretty cool place to hang out. Um, that's our intuition. That's our, you know, our, a lot of our creativity. So it's yanking out of the, 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 the linear left brain and just kind of, you know, let yourself go. Let your spirit go. Yeah, those first few shots can make all the difference in the world because you can ruminate about it till, till the cows come home. Yeah. But... After you make those initial images, all of a sudden it becomes something unto itself. Well, it's just, again, once you have the first good picture, then it's like, oh, okay, I can do this. Um, In 2000, I think it was 2000, um, I was commissioned by the L.A. Public Library downtown to photograph downtown like a neighborhood. Um, They had all these neighborhood projects. And I met with the curator, a wonderful, wonderful woman, Carolyn Cole, and we took out a map of L.A., and we took out our yellow Sharpies, and we sort of determined what my parameters for the project would be. And I had no idea how to start this project. I definitely was like, you know, slightly <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of, I wasn't paralyzed, but I was just like, oh, my God, you know, where do you begin? You know, and she had my shopping list of topics she wanted me to address. And so I thought, okay. So I just started driving around, and I just left it to chance. Like I thought, okay, the first parking place I find, I'm going to park, and then I'm going to start walking. And I did that the first three days. And so I just completely left it to chance. And then after those first three days, and I was still shooting black and white film, and then I get the pictures back, and I thought, oh, cool, I've got two pictures. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I started, but that's how I sort of kick-started my, my fear, my... It was daunting. I had three months to do it. So anyway, so that's how I chose to um, cross the cross the hurdle of fear. <laughs> Has that changed more recently, or do you find that it's less of an issue in terms of starting something? I mean, I, I've said this in, in other interviews, but I think my my big projects find me. I don't really find them. They or my my big projects choose me. I would say um, none of my projects. My I did a ten year photo sort of project on the Philippines, which is a book, and then yeah. the twenty nine year uh, women in war, and then Tibet. So yeah, it's fairly organic with me, and I don't know that I'm. I I, I don't realize that I'm knee deep in a project until I'm knee deep in it. And I'm at a very interesting moment right now. I have this little project I'm doing, sort of street photography for this LAX show. But other than that, I have no idea what my next project will be. And I'm just sort of, at this point, kind of just letting go and trusting <laughs> the universe to present it to me. I have no idea. You know, I haven't, I'm, I'm not even thinking conceptually. I'm just like, I don't know. So what are you doing in order to getting your work out there? Because it's one thing to produce all this, all this material. And you know, as listeners no doubt know, the world of photography is changing, not only in terms <laughs> of the images you create it with, but how they're being distributed and how they're being sold. Yeah. So you know, what, what things have you learned that have helped you in terms of you being able to take this work that you've invested so much time and energy and love into and, and, and find an audience for them? Well, I think I've had um, the benefit of being a freelancer for 30, hmm, 35, no, not quite, 30 years, um, in that my nature was suited to being a freelancer and that I'm pretty good at, you know, being tenacious, you know, following up, hustling, (laughs) you know, just sort of being a go-getter. And I think that that has helped, that trait has helped me survive sort of the last 10 years, which I think has been just 
excruciating for so many creative mediums and photographers and it's compli- it's been so complicated and everybody the old guard trying to figure out how to reposition themselves and then we have what well, we we're not going to talk about this but now there's photography everywhere you know because everybody's a photographer now so um there's this 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 overabundance of imagery um so how do you keep the show on the road um so i think i my skills as being sort of a um i don't take the first no i don't even take the second no i just keep going um and um just you know sort of being tenacious i think so yeah that but i've always been that way and so you know i've when i was younger you know if i got a rejection i you know sort of sulk for a little while lick my (laughs) wounds and then sort of say right but you know i still got to pay the rent so um plus i think i just always love being a photographer so it was this thing that just has driven me all these years. I mean, it still drives me. I still have this sort of insatiable sense of wonder. I mean, I want to go to Antarctica. I want to see the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. I mean, I have a grocery, you know, shopping list of places I want to go and things I want to see. So, I mean, you know, and so many beautiful things are free. I mean, just look, I don't know if you saw the moon last night. It was like insane. It was so gorgeous. I mean, it was just hanging there so low. So I think it's just, you know, I keep myself going. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, when you realize, like you have, that, that your, your camera can be your passport to all those things. Oh, absolutely. It's a hard thing to think of giving it up. I mean, yeah. Especially once you've had a taste of what, what you can have as a result of the fact that you have a camera in your hand and you're good at making photographs yeah. and telling stories. It's like, you, even if you aren't tenacious to begin with, yeah. you want that so badly that you're willing to do whatever you need to do in order to keep to make it happen. And I think that's, that's something you learn if you're not born with it naturally. Yeah, I think the challenge, at least for me, is you know, always what am, I, what am I saying with the camera? You know, what story am I telling or what, what, what am I, what's my point of view? Like, I think sometimes I want to go back to painting where I started when I was a kid. Although I'm still painting with, with light. <laughs> but I think to myself, well, what do I want to say with my painting? I don't know. Um, so, But I know what I, I want to say with my photography. Yeah. Before we're done, I, I wanted to talk about your book. Because that was when I saw the book that you did on the Tibet, I thought it was just a gorgeous well, I, we have a, I have another copy here, so oh, we, can, have, we can show it, it again. again. But it was like, I so appreciated the thoughtfulness of the entire package. Yeah. There's so many photographers who put together a photo book, and yeah, it's a collection of photographs, and they may be laid out, and, mm. you know, and the pictures look really good, the good paper and all that. But you were really thoughtful in terms yeah. of everything that went into this physical manifestation of those images. Tell me why it was so important to do it in the way that you did it. Well, I, I guess I see this book as something more than just a book I mean I see the whole package almost as something precious and I think maybe it's because Tibet is precious to me and the Tibetans yeah it was a very complete vision and I had a really great designer who I I did the sequencing and I chose there's no white borders or anything in the book there's just the only white is in the images and I just, I, and, and then there's some serendipity um, with the finding the fabric, um, which turned out to be an Italian fabric. And then we had some problems with the um, embossing colors, which actually turned out 
to be a great problem because we were supposed to have gold on the cover. And then when they sent me the sample because the black was smearing because the type was too small, I realized I hated the gold. I mean, it was like Mm. Gucci gold. And I thought there was no way. So (laughs) we had some sort of wonderful serendipity. Um, But yeah, I think it just, it was, I had a very clear vision of, of what I wanted to do with the book. And coming back to tenacity, I spent a year and a half trying to contact um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and making a request for the foreword of the book. And then I finally got it. So um, so that was, <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't giving up. <laughs> I'm a very stubborn Taurus. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, getting his forward for the book and what he wrote, it's like that for me was a real turning point because I thought, that's it. I don't, there's no more fight. There's, I don't have to fight for anything anymore. I mean, to get his his beautiful words and his nod of, of, you know, his graceful nod acknowledging the project. It's doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be? Do they need to be in LA? No, it can be anyone. Um, well, there, I have a, a very dear friend who I think is an absolutely marvelous photographer. He lives in Santa Fe. His name is Norman Moskoff. He's done, I think, three or four books with 12 trees. Um, he's now mid-60s, um, slowing down, doesn't have a project, I think a bit betwixt and between. But his work has been very poetic, um, different than mine, um, but also sort of documentary style. Um, he's extremely bright, well-read, well-versed, thinks about photography 24-7. Um, but I think he's, he's a bit of a... Um, I've known Norman, we met in 1984 on a, on a project called 24 Hours in the Life of Los Angeles that these two Brits yeah. did. And Norman and I have been friends, and I, I think we've always had a bit of a... A sort of uh, friendly, competitive sort of spirit with each other. But I always felt like we were the tortoise and the hare. You know, I, of course, was the hare, you know, Miss Speedy. And Norman is much more slow but um, and thoughtful, and he just moves slower. Um, but he's, he's done beautiful, beautiful work. And where can people go to find out more about you and, and all the work that you're doing? Um, well, I have three websites. Um, my main website is marissarothphotography.com. And then I have two a website dedicated to each project. So the Women and War Project, that website is uh, onepersoncrying.com. And then uh, the third website is for the Tibet book. The, the, the book is entitled um, Infinite Light, a photographic meditation on Tibet. But the website is Tibet Infinite Light. We couldn't just get just Infinite Light. That was already taken. So those, those are kind of will give you a, an idea of uh, what's going on at the moment and where I've been a little bit. So Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was great. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, 
Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code Pirello, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.